Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. My speaker today is veterinarian Alexis Newman, and we're going to be chatting about skunks, porcupines, and perhaps some other critter hazards your dog might encounter outdoors. So first, Dr. Newman, can you tell my listeners something about yourself? Sure. Hello. Um, I'm actually a small animal veterinarian in the Chicagoland area. I see dogs and cats, but my focus and the majority of my patients are working canines. So those include law enforcement, search and rescue, and some arson dogs. Um, I'm also the veterinarian for the Illinois Task Force, so I oversee their search and rescue dogs, so I'm pretty familiar with what they can get into. Um, and then I am also pretty involved in, in some education training for all types of handlers and write uh, medical articles for some working dog magazines just to make sure everybody has the opportunity to be as educated as possible about how to medically care for their dogs. And, you know, I think most people are familiar with the unmistakable odor of a skunk. Where and how does the skunk produce that chemical and how far can they spray it? Um, well, it's interesting. And it, what's one of the most interesting things to me is it is that unmistakable odor. But certainly for anybody who's had the opportunity to have that close up on their dog um, and then unfortunately in their house, it's actually a it smells very different just be when it's that potent and that up close. So it's actually even worse when it's that up close. Um, they actually, the way the skunks are, are using it is as a weapon. So they use their, the, it's the glands of their, or the scent of their anal glands that they're using as the, in the wild, a weapon to avoid danger. Um, they have two glands that are located near their rectum, which produce the chemical substance. Um, and it, it's made of a chemical called thiols, and it can be very irritating as well as nauseating, as some of us know. Um, irritating to the eyes and the mucous membranes. They can actually um, spray it up to 10 feet. So, unfortunately, it, your canine doesn't have to be right up, up close to it. They just have to be close enough to scare them and get sprayed. And how much odor does needs to be present for a human to detect it? Um, it that is quite variable. I, I don't know that there's much research on the amount um, in terms of a, a quantity, but it depends on how concentrated it is, and, and that can certainly depend on how frequently the skunk has recently sprayed. Um, and certainly, of course, it can depend on how sensitive people are to, to odors. So once a skunk sprays, is it done for a while, or can they spray more than once? They can spray more than once, and, and again, as with many things as the defense in the wild, uh, skunks are not prone to, for lack of a better term, they don't want to spray. They really will only do it when they feel threatened. Um, so they can't. They have enough chemical within those glands to have about five sprays. But once they've utilized that, they it can take 
it can take up to 10 days for their body to produce another supply. Um, so of course, it's um, it's their their protection, and they'll try to to keep from doing it at any any point. But of course, the oncoming dog is certainly worth releasing the scent for them. Where are dogs most likely to run into a skunk? Uh, it certainly it depends on the environment um, in terms of rural or suburban. Um, you know whether a dog's at home or training. Most um, skunks are known as nocturnal animals, of course, meaning they sleep during the day and are more active at night. Um, certainly, though, with with uh, the environment and people around, those their habits can change if they're disrupted during the day and they they wake up or they haven't had a good food supply and they're they're out and about during the day. So at night is the most concerning time. Certainly one reason is we don't always see them and keep them keep our dogs away from them. Um but we'd want to be most most cautious at night and then um when it's it's dark and an area is not exposed for even the our dog to see. The further away they see them and potentially make some noise and the skunk could could run away. But if, if it's dark and they suddenly come face to face, that's definitely when there's the most risk. At least my own observation is I see a lot more skunks near my house, which is a suburban neighborhood, than I've ever seen in the woods. Deep in the woods. I, and I agree, and I think we've all heard that, you know, the concerns of displacing them and and or they, they're out there where they used to be and there's just not the right food supply, so they're they're finding different areas of food, which may be our subdivisions. <laughs> and, um, you know, so if a, um, a dog rushes at a skunk, we know things happen pretty fast, but if a dog or a human or some other threat approaches more slowly, does the skunk give some kind of warning before spraying? Typically they will, and I, and I keep going back to the defense mechanism because they would rather avoid the confrontation. If if they see an animal coming, they will typically avoid there. They won't stand and and have a um, you know a confrontation if they can avoid that. With that said, they don't always see the animal coming. So I think it's it's equally important whether the dog's at home and going out at night or working in an environment. If there can be any type of noise, almost alerting the the skunk that an animal or humans there and certainly any light. So if you're if you're venturing into a dark area, you can make some noise and you can shine some light. That may give the skunk the opportunity to get away because that's what they'd prefer to do. Um unfortunately as we've we've almost all encountered, sometimes our dogs will certainly hear and smell that skunk first and and be ready to go. So I, I think again keeping Keep being most cautious at night and making making some sounds and and having some light available to try to give that um, skunk an opportunity to get away is your best chance. Yeah, and I think sometimes they kind of like stamp their feet and lift their tail to say, "Okay, don't get any closer because I'm going to spray." You know what? Not. I agree, and and I should have mentioned I I've actually seen them hiss quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if the dog's close enough to get. His dad, he may be close enough to get skunk, but I again, I think that, you know, I bet a skunk would would hiss before spraying. So, um, you know, being aware of an environment, of course, once 
once our dog hears the hiss, they're going to go even quicker toward them. But if we hear mm-hmm. first, then then we could probably mm-hmm. protect them sometimes. Yeah, and we know that the skunk spray smells terrible, but does it? Other than being unpleasant, are there any other dangerous effects from skunk odor? Fortunately, it, it there really are not too many serious ones. It's usually more of a nuisance, and of course, it usually happens in the middle of the night, um, <laughs> or at least at night when when it's we're least ready to get our dogs bathed. But there can be mild and infrequently some severe medical problems. More mild is um, I've certainly seen dogs and that are sprayed in the eyes. It's irritating. They want to rub the eyes. They don't understand why the eyes hurt. So those can be most typically treated by flushing the eyes either with some saline or some uh, water and just giving the, them some time to get severe. The mm-hmm. other medical concerns is they can become nauseated, but it's not typically serious. They're nauseous from the the smell and the chemical in their mouth, and then that can pass. I have seen more recently, I've seen a couple of dogs who got sprayed in the face, and they actually developed pretty good rashes along their lips, which I had not seen so much before. Again, hmm. they went away with just with the topical uh, medication. And then the one un- unlikely but possible scenario is there's almost a type of uh, chem- uh, reaction with the chemical in the red blood cells. It's been seen, it's not common, but if a dog has enough spray and theoretically just has the wrong reaction, there can be changes to the red blood cells um, that can make them anemic over a couple of days. It's very uncommon, but it's definitely possible. So what I always tell people is once we treat the initial bathing component and the eyes, Watch the dog for any changes over the next couple of days. And, and again, probably less than one out of 100 dogs will have that, but something to watch watch more closely uh, for symptoms of any weakness or change of behavior a couple of days after the spray. So what should be the first thing you do? If your dog gets sprayed, what would be your first step as a handler? Um, after we all typically have a few words for, <laughs> for our dog's behavior. Um, and it's there, of course, there, the dog's first instinct is to run back in their environment, whether it's in the in a working environment or a home. So often it's best to keep them outside if possible. The biggest thing and the biggest concern immediately for that dog is their discomfort to to the eyes. So check the eyes. It's pretty pretty consistent. If they've been sprayed in the eyes, they are squinting. They're holding their eyes closed or they're rubbing at them. The good thing is it's not terribly dangerous. It is uncomfortable. So I'd say the first thing to focus on is the eyes and rinse them out if possible. After that, mm-hmm. you know, calm the dog down and come up with an action plan of where usually the next step is to get the dog bathed and uh, where, when and where you'll be able to do that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I remember as a kid giving our, do- our beagle a bath in tomato juice. Does that work? I personally have never seen it work. I've certainly seen some people do it. I, I, I've looked before. I, I can't figure out exactly how that became a good recipe. I think there. Well, I do know that there are some neutralizing components to the tomato juice. Nowadays, fortunately, we have other options. So, 
it's become, become a little bit old school. It's a lot of work and, and certainly uh, not anything clean. So the nice thing is we don't have to worry about doing that that bath anymore. So what should we be using to get rid of the skunk smell? There are the there are two options I recommend. The first one, um, surprisingly, the one I find works the best is actually a homemade uh, recipe, and it's you really have to just Google uh, mm-hmm. skunk skunk bath and uh, hydrogen peroxide, and it will come up. But the, the actual recipe is a quart of hydrogen peroxide, a quarter cup of baking soda. And just a teaspoon of dishwashing soap, just liquid dishwashing soap, and you mix those up. and And part of the reason it works so well is that it doesn't actually just cover it like a shampoo. It it actually neutralizes the um, the the, ox- the hydrogen peroxide neutralizes the chemicals, the thiols we talked about. So it actually truly can neutralize and almost remove the scent. One of the hard parts is, that, of course, a lot of these dogs are sprayed in the in the face and we can remove the scent from the fur. Certainly it's hard to remove the scent from the mouth or the nasal cavity. So I know many canine handlers have had dogs sprayed that, that, you know, for the next week or two, whenever they, they're panting, you can smell that again, but it is a great recipe to, um, to use. It is, it's just made at home, but it's important to have those ingredients. And one note we always mention when we recommend this is, because of the uh, hydrogen peroxide and baking soda mixing together. Interestingly enough, it can become a volatile uh, mixture in it. And so what we do is we recommend discarding it instead of storing it in a, in a container, which most people do anyway. We usually make it up and, and pour all of it onto the dog while bathing. Mm-hmm. And you said there was another another way to treat the skunk and, odor besides yes, there the homemade? Are, yes, there's actually there there are a couple over or over the counter commercial skunk scent removers. Mm-hmm. I find some of those work. I personally, with the dogs I've worked with, the best uh, success we've had is that homemade ingredient. Certainly, there's a convenience factor to the ones that are already on the market and available. They do work well for some dogs, um, and you can always rebathe them or use that initially, and then bathe with the homemade ingredients if you don't have that um and interestingly enough it, it sounds a little bit odd but there's also a product that that can another product that can work but not as well and um but but it's something that people know about and try it's there's the ingredient on the market um that basically a feminine hygiene douche well it the chemicals in that can actually do a lot of the same oh. Same uh, neutralizing. It doesn't work as well. It doesn't come in a big package. So I have known people who use it with some success, but I think it when this is occurring with people, they want something easy that works quickly. So I'd recommend mm-hmm. the homemade recipe or the over-the-counter uh, mm-hmm. chemicals that are made for skunk scent removing. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. I googled that uh, skunk, you know, the homemade formula recently, yeah. and yeah. the story was interesting. That it was a chemist who was doing research on thiols, and he didn't really, he didn't have the experience of having smelled a skunk before. And uh, you know, he oh. came up knowing the chemistry. He came up with this when uh, somebody he worked with 
came in and was complaining about their dog having been skunked. And then after he wanted to try it out himself, he drove around and he found a roadkill skunk, a fresh roadkill skunk, and he bathed the whole skunk in that stuff and uh, and removed the, the odor. Um, is there anything for your car or your house once the dog is in is That's a great places, question. Yeah. Um, because, again, working with so many, often people drive them to the veterinary clinic or drive them to the somewhere to be groomed and with with the dogs I work with a lot of the officers are on duty and they, they put get right in their squad um, and the squad car can smell for several days personally there's a product called fresh wave that we use a lot in our um, in our clinic they, they actually have a pet shampoo which does help with uh, skunk odor and they have a spray which I am a strong or a big fan of this spray uh the fresh wave and it really does help to neutralize it also so that's good to know because uh when i visited my son recently he complained that my new puppy smelled like a dog and i thought well it's yeah. a dog but i went there was around the corner there's one of those self dog grooming places so i right. asked them their their price you know about de-skunking a dog in case his dog gets sprayed again and he just looked at me like I was crazy. He said, I'm not putting my dog in the car if she's right. been sprayed by a skunk. It is. And it, and I will tell um, the listeners that many veterinary, it's very common people rightfully almost panic, um, especially if they weren't expecting it, especially if their dog's eyes are squinting and they, they think they need mm-hmm. urgent care. Many mm-hmm. veterinary clinics will not let a patient who is very stable, doesn't need medical care. A patient who has been skunked will not be allowed in the doors because it can be a bit nauseating. It can be overwhelming to the staff and other patients. So they'll mm-hmm. often be met at the door and asked, and, and the exam could be performed outside. So they won't mm-hmm. um, they won't necessarily allow the dog in inside. So they, if listeners may want to call their veterinary clinic before they head over. Yeah, that's why I checked with the. The grooming place to see whether they allow dogs have been sprayed by skunks and <laughs> and uh, so if we switch gears to talk about porcupines, which are actually America's largest rodents and can weigh up to thirty five pounds. Um, in fact, what's really interesting is I took a book out of the library a few years ago called The North American Porcupine by Aldous U L I S Rose R O Z E. And if you really want to learn about the behavior and biology of porcupines, I would definitely recommend this book. This author had spent decades studying the porcupines living on his property in the Catskill Mountains of of New York. So how aggressive are porcupines? Are they likely to attack? They're not a lot unlike skunks in that they're they're also nocturnal, and they will also try to avoid confrontation. So um, they will not typically try to attack. They will, more of their mechanism, with especially the quilling is a defense mechanism, they would prefer to get away than have to do that. Mm-hmm. And can they throw their quills? No, actually, I know a lot of people think they throw their quills and then wonder how far. And it, it's actually a misnomer. The quills break away easily. So any even a gentle touch with them, which, of course, we know our canines aren't typically gently touching them. Um, but <laughs> even a gentle touch, they can break away easily. So certainly significant interaction there can be many, many quills released. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I have a friend who's Native American, and he used to make some stuff out of the porcupine quills. And he said oh, wow. what he would do would throw his, if he found a porcupine, he'd say, 
you throw a sweatshirt over it, and then the porcupine would run off Just and leave them behind for a him. sweatshirt. Yeah. That was they are a fascinating animal. They are yeah. fascinating. So what, they are. What is the structure of the porcupine quills? It's actually they're it, they're made of keratin, so they're not um, they're not a lot unlike bird feathers in terms of the middle portion of them, and certainly that we know that the porcupines can vary in in size. But um, I did actually read something that there can be up to thirty thousand quills covering an average size porcupine. So wow, gives us some idea how much trouble they our dogs can get into. So I should feel lucky that I had a dog once that tangled with a porcupine and just got two quills on her nose. That, <laughs> that was, that's definitely the, <laughs> not the norm. <laughs> no. <laughs> so will they work, you know, if a dog gets quilled, you know, and say there's just a couple quills, will they work their way out over time? Not typically. And certainly in a situation like yours, if there's one or two, if if the handler or the owner can gently remove them, that would be great, but that would be unusual. They have almost a barbed end so that they mm-hmm. tend to move inward versus outward. So two would be an, an unusual number. Usually there's many more, even if, you know, even if there's a dozen, um, which, but some can have, you know, upwards of a hundred quills. Um, they definitely will not be able to be removed at home because of that barbed component um most it is far more likely that the patient will require some sedation to be able to remove them and some of them are almost a minor surgery if they get embedded too deeply yeah and i had always heard that well porcupine quills are hollow so you should clip the end off to release suction and and then they'll be easier to remove is this a good idea or a bad idea? That's, that's more of a misnomer and in turn or a, a misunderstanding, I should say, because again, they're they are more like a feather in terms of their um, the quill portion, and so just like a feather, if you break it apart, it can fracture or shatter a little bit, which can make it more traumatic on the tissue. That certainly is the the minor portion of the trauma of the tissue, but in general, it more importantly, it doesn't release that suction, so it doesn't do any good. The only mm-hmm. way really to remove them is to individually remove each one. And again, some of them are quite embedded and need um, need surgical removal. And what kind of complications could a dog run into from getting quilled by a porcupine? Sadly, they can be quite significant. The, the vast majority of them, just like we were talking about with skunks and um, getting a facial spray, the quills are often also embedded in the face. Um, so going back to treatment with a veterinarian, not only does the um, sedation or anesthesia allow us to, you know, make sure the patient or the dog's not uncomfortable, it actually can release some of the or uh, relax some of the muscles so they're easier to pull out. Um, because if we don't get them all out. And if you don't get the full portion of it, they can actually migrate. So we talked about that barb. It's hard to pull them out. The the natural um, route is for these to keep migrating further. So what that can do, it it, it can be life-threatening in, in the minority of cases and that the, these can migrate to either into a muscle, which may may create an abscess or an infection that we need to surgically remove. 
but more concerning is if they migrate into a, a internal organ or a, into the chest. That's where we worry about a life-threatening infection and possible uh, possible need for true emergency care. Mm-hmm. And actually, another question I hadn't even thought of: um, Will porcupine quills show up on an X-ray if you're trying to figure out what's going on? If they, not typically. Now, if there were right next to each other because of the density you may see a hint of it if there's a little uh-huh. air around it you may but in general especially if it's the if it's the tip of it it won't show and so that can make it hard because for instance say we're removing a, a quill and we can feel another one but you can't necessarily see it x-ray will uh-huh. not help and that's where sometimes we have to as i mentioned surgically open up that area and and be able to get each each portion out. Now, if there's a tiny portion, it can act almost like a splinter, where the body starts to wall it off and get it becomes infected, and it becomes clear where it is. But again, if if the body doesn't have that reaction, it keeps going, and we lose track of it. Um, that's where we really have to watch for any symptoms. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, does your average dog, if it gets quilled by a porcupine once, does it avoid porcupines in the future? Unfortunately, not in my experience, and of course, same with skunks. I think if I, I would think if there were multiple, they may shy away. But in general, like again, like skunks, I think they're the dog's not even quite sure what happened before it happened. So um, they may stick their nose in. Suddenly, there's a porcupine there, and they're quilled before they know it. Um, so there's not necessarily a, a normal deterrent after the you know after even a couple of times. Right, it's like, it's like training anything else. It takes a lot of repetition. So. You got it. And we um, probably hope to avoid that much repet- repetition to have them actually realize. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, I live in upstate New York where there are venomous snakes. They're not something I have to worry about. And so I absolutely do not know much about snake bites. Yes. Um, but if a snake were to bite my dog, how would I know whether it was a venomous snake? Um, part of that's being very uh, familiar, as, like as you just said, knowing you don't have them there. It's equally important to know, especially if you're working dog out in an area that's not necessarily where you live and are familiar with, to know what is out there. You know, say a dog is deployed and has a has a search in another area. Talk to the people in that area. Talk to the veterinarians in that area because it is important as as we know most the vast majority of snakes are very regional um you mentioned new york i actually practiced in california for quite some time and we saw a fair number of rattlesnake bites in chicago area we we don't have those so it, it we don't even stock antivenom where i am now but in the past we wouldn't think of not stocking it so the probably the most important thing is to be familiar with what's in your area and even go one step further, and if you're if you know there are snakes in that area, try to be familiar with what they look like, so that you it's very important if possible, or if possible, it can be helpful to let the veterinary staff know what kind of snake it is. Therefore, knowing if it's um, uh, venomous or not. So does that mean somebody should say, "Oh my God, this snake just bit my dog. Let me try and catch it and kill it." Certainly, I would not recommend that, or would not be 
want to try that myself. And, and of course, we're talking about venomous snakes and, and the danger, or possibly venomous, the dangers to dogs. So the last thing we want to do is have uh, a person try to catch it. If it's possible and, and without being in danger, even a picture of the of the snake would be would be helpful to the medical staff. They may know what it is, or certainly they can look it up and determine what kind of what kind of snake and therefore venomous or not. And then, if venomous, what kind of not only what kind of antivenom if if there's a difference with that one, but what kind of trauma they're expecting because snakes can cause different types of trauma depending on what they are. Yeah, and um, actually, I just learned about an app that would probably help in a situation like this if you could get a picture of the snake. There's something called iNaturalist, and you can upload the picture, and it will give you suggestions of what wow. it might be. And a friend of mine just told me about that a couple of weeks ago. So it's kind That's of neat. great to know. But it's great for any kind of plants and animals you might encounter out in the woods. That's great to know. Yeah. And um, so how should I care for or handle my dog on the way to, to the vet? Um, depending on the dog's personality, it can be potentially a challenge or fairly easy. The big picture is we want to minimize activity. Now, we know that some dogs are going to be more active than others. Snake bites in general are quite painful for venomous snakes. And so some dogs are going to be more or likely to be still than others. The best thing we can do as handlers is to minimize, minimize movement. So if they're comfortable just laying down, that's best. If you need to, to you know, wrap maybe their limb that was bit in a in a blanket or something, that, that helps. Unfortunately, many of the dogs we we use, especially for working dogs, are bit in the face, and that's certainly harder to... You can't wrap it, but anything you can do to minimize movement. Um, it, keeping in mind these dogs are stressed and painful, I do absolutely recommend a muzzle if needed to minimize any any danger to the handler. Um, but but I will stress it's very important the muzzle is loose enough that the dog's able to pant. Um, mm-hmm. And definitely, if if possible, keep the area um, elevated. Into at least the level of the um, heart, if not above, uh, but that may not always be practical. So, just uh, minimizing movement and efficient transport is probably the most important. And what about? I read about some things that I guess you should avoid, like tourniquets, ice, and cutting the skin and, and sucking the poison out. So, are those things all right? Old wives' tales. And and definitely the cutting the skin and sucking the poison out is is the is a wives' tale and certainly can be dangerous. Um, so that absolutely is not recommended. Um, ironically, where we just talked about all of the minimizing movement, that's because we're trying to delay the spread of the venom throughout the bloodstream. And you would think icing or tourniquet would be helpful. Although what mm-hmm. that does, the tourniquet will control the blood potentially to that area, and the ice will do the same by... by uh, uh, decreasing the blood flow to that area, but we don't want to do that because it's almost too much. We it, we are potentially then risking all of the muscle in that area because by isolating the venom that closely, it could cause severe muscle damage. So those are not recommended actually, um, and it can cause more damage. Okay. 
And so now let's say I've gotten my dog to the veterinarian. What kind of tests and treatments will the veterinarian do? Of course, it depends on severity. And and some of these dogs Mm -hmm. are in shock and can be quite critical. And one of the things I've kind of learned to to stress to everybody is we're treating the dog's condition. We're not treating the snake or the venom. Mm -hmm. It's important to know. But in order to, for instance, use antivenom, we need to make sure the dog's stable. So we're going to do supportive care, oxygen if needed. We're going to do blood work to see if it's affecting any organs. And one thing it can do is it truly affect the ability of the dog's blood to clot. So you might hear the veterinarian talk about checking clotting times. Um, so the the testing is not is important, but more important is treating for supportive care and making our making sure our patient stays alive in order to to get antivenom if needed. Mm-hmm. And how long might it take a dog? Um, let's say they had a severe snake bite. How long might it take them to recover? It could take anywhere from I've seen them within a couple of days be discharged to a couple of weeks, depending on wow. usually the severity and where they're they're bitten. So if it's a fairly local bite and not severe, um, it may just be a man- matter of managing the the wound and and making sure the dog's comfortable. Others I've seen them again. We're talking about dogs that are going at these snakes with the face. So I've seen one a couple of dogs swell enough in the uh, in the facial and neck area that they actually needed temporary tracheostomies in order to to make sure they could breathe while all the swelling went down. So obviously those guys are, are more critical for a longer period. So are there some ways to reduce the risk that your dog gets bitten by a snake? I think a lot going back to where we were trying to avoid contact with the um, skunk, and it's of course even harder because sometimes snakes are right in front of us and hard for us to see. But being aware of the uh, going back to the environment and are there snakes in that area? And if so, be sure then to make you know know where the dog's face is and not allow them to get under brush or under areas you know wood or something where where snakes may be because um, we we truly don't even often see them. Even before or after, they may they may envenomate and be gone so quickly we don't know. So just being aware of your dog's presence is probably the most important. Mm-hmm. And you know, one final animal is you know, I have a new puppy, and I never I have never heard of this before. But somebody said to me, "Oh, you better be careful. You have a small puppy, and a snapping turtle is going to get your dog if you know if it's swimming. It's going to reach up and get your dog's leg." So are snapping turtles dangerous to dogs? It's funny. I haven't encountered them either, but I've heard the same thing with others having them. They definitely, Mm -hmm. um, typically, the good thing is not life-threatening or severe, but they can cause pretty significant injury. We're talking once again about these these curious dogs with their faces in or around the water or the banks. So they will put their put their snouts where they potentially shouldn't be and they can get pretty significant injuries either taking off a portion of the lip or or um, just severe pain so the, the probably the only the only best part about them is is that there's not an ant or venom type of aspect as we have with the with the snakes it is just soft tissue trauma that could be infected but typically something very 
very curable and treatable, but certainly nothing to to uh, to to uh, keep your dog from in terms of getting their snout again where they shouldn't have them. Mm-hmm. Well, thanks for talking with me today. I hope that my listeners have learned something about various animal hazards. Thank you very much. Now I'm going to hit the end recording button. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.